Hello, Andrew Hebard here with the Ahi Flower channel, Plant-Based Omegas for Regenerative Health and a Regenerative Planet. Today, I'm delighted to be here with Richard Bazinet, a professor at the University of Toronto within the Department of Nutritional Science, a world-renowned expert and leader in the area of brain lipid metabolism, and currently serves as the Canada Research Chair for Brain Lipid Metabolism. Richard, thank you so much for joining us this afternoon. Hi, Andrew. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. So you've had a phenomenal journey through digging deeper and deeper into research and culminating with the, your current uh, seat as the, the chair of research or Canada research chair. Could you share with us a little bit about your journey as you've got deeper and deeper into how dietary fats impact health and wellness and particularly brain health? Yeah, absolutely. So I started my um, studies in the field of nutrition as an undergraduate and went on to do uh, graduate work uh, with Stephen Kinane at the University of Toronto. He's, he's since left here. Um, and we were studying fatty acid metabolism uh, in the context of lymphomation, which I think is an important area. And then to make a long story short, you, you remember those days when PowerPoint presentations always got slowed up and you're at a conference and they had a hard time switching them. Well, I, I had just given a, speak at a, a speech at a conference and I, the next talk wouldn't load up and I had a pleasant conversation with somebody who was interested in brain metabolism. And he invited me for a fellowship uh, at the NIH, which I took uh, to study brain lipid metabolism. And so we were able to put together some of my PhD work and you know into my postdoc. And then I came to um, Canada with my own independent position after that, and just got really interested in, in using um, kinetics and quantitative approaches to study omega-3s, you know, not just that they're in the brain, but how much is in the brain, and then not just that you eat them, but how much do you have to eat to, you know, figure out how much gets in the brain. So it was a series of, you know, training opportunities with exciting people and then putting those skills together uh, to set up a research program. Excellent. Well, I'm going to jump straight in here. One of the objectives of this series of interviews uh, is really to help the consumer understand and maybe pick through a little bit about uh, omega-3 nutrition, why it's important. Uh, there's a lot of confusion around the three-letter acronyms. And also, you know, many of us over the last three or four decades have been brought up under the sort of uh, environment that to get complete and balanced omega nutrition, we have to take it in the form of preformed EPA and DHA, mainly from uh, fish oil or uh, krill oil or out now more likely algal oil. And without that, we're kind of shortchanging our metabolism from having a complete and balanced nutrition for health and wellness and longevity. And I think recently your research is maybe showing that that, that sort of three decade old, four decade, decade old research is really needs rethinking. Is that, is that a fair statement? And could you share your observations with us? Yeah, so I think, you know, what happens in research is, you know, there's a discovery and some of these discoveries, I think with fish oil uh, 30, 40, 50 years ago, were really exciting and, and the field kind of moves that way and pushes that forward and, and things get left aside. What we were able to come in and do in this context in this field, especially in the context of the brain, was get a, a little better idea, you know, not so much heart disease, but, you know, how much do you need uh, in terms of omega-3s to get the brain? And then, you know, there's this controversy, it's been a long-term controversy where you've got 
the brain has a lot of DHA. So everybody was saying, well, eat DHA, that's simple. Um, and that you couldn't really convert the plant precursors um, to DHA. And what we've shown, at least in the context of the brain, is that, yeah, you, you actually can do a pretty good job there. And so we've been able to, I think, you know, I, I challenge the dogmas one, one, one way of phrasing it, or maybe just go off in a little direction, you know, uh, tangential and kind of clarify some things is another way of looking at that. That's, that's, that's hugely impactful, uh, particularly in this climate, as people are looking for or making decisions based on sustainability and ethical sourcing and that sort of thing. Um, and as you say, there's uh, maybe dogma, it, it's, uh, it's um, you know, areas of controversy around the sources of omega. Um, but to say, and, and certainly the years that I've been studying it, it's been very much a, a fact, a stated fact that humans are inherently inefficient, almost incapable of manufacturing DHA themselves and your research is is kind of upending that statement yeah so you know I think the simple way of saying it, our research shows that's just not true but I think a lot of people knew it wasn't quite true I think what we did was a little different so this conversion question can be laid out I think simply you know people have used pretty good methods and they show things like the conversion is one percent so you take these plant-based precursors and about 1% of them uh, can get converted to, you know, things like DHA, about 1%, it varies. Uh, and 1% is a low number, right? If, if, if uh, you give me $100 and I give you a dollar back, that's a low rate of return on your investment. 1% is just low. And so I think people got into that mindset. What we did that was a little different with some of these kinetic approaches is we, we said, well, how much do you need? Because, you know, if, if I'm only giving you a dollar back, it's not a lot, but if you only have to buy one little candy, it's more than enough, right, to buy the little candy. And by changing the question from, you know, 1% being low to how much do we actually need, I think we find out that this 1%, at least in the context of the brain, is, is what we think is more than enough. So, uh, you know, it makes me think about, uh, again, the, the, the comment that we are innately inefficient or incapable, is it maybe that we are actually very capable, but we do it in a limiting way that we only convert what we need? And you know. yeah, absolutely. You know, nutrition's got this interesting thing with it, where you know, more is always better. That's kind of a you know a stereotype in the field. If some vitamin C is good for me, more is better. So I think there's similar ideas around this conversion, and and what we we're hypothesizing now is that this one percent is enough and it's actually regulated uh and and so if you if you if you're not getting enough you know you ramp up that conversion to use it but interestingly when you when you start consuming more dha or epa you even slow down that conversion even further and you've got a, a homeostatic or a regulation around there so so absolutely it looks like the body's kind of pre-programmed to make a certain amount, an amount we think you need, and, you know, uh, adjust around that. So we're, we're pretty good. And I guess, I guess evolution would be, would be a good uh, uh, sort of support to this, that we're pretty good at being able to find a diverse array of feedstocks from the environment around us and have our body actually do the conversion of those feedstocks, maybe rather than take the preformed 
the, the end product. You're saying that we could actually, our bodies are, have adapted through the environments we're in, we've co-evolved to use the materials on hand. And, and in doing so, we might be getting more of a benefit than taking preformed fatty acids. So, so the, you, you know, the evolutionary diet is very controversial. One of the theories I like is that there is no evolutionary diet. There's a whole bunch of them. And humans have adapted to a variety of different diets, some which would contain fish and some would, which do not. And, and we've got this homeostatic ability to, you know, make uh, EPA and DHA from plant-based uh, precursors like ALA and you're interested in quite an SDA. And if we happen to be eating fish, we slow down that, that regulation. Now, you know, what is optimal? That, that becomes a really complicated question. I think there's evidence that EPA and DHA do things independently of just, you know, this conversion process. But what we're, what we're challenging is those that say, well, you can't make enough. Uh, clearly, at least in adults, uh, you can make enough and you can regulate that synthesis. You know, the idea that you decrease your synthesis when you consume a DHA, it's almost like it says, hey, there's enough of me, stop making me. Uh, suggests that yeah, there there are uh, a few approaches to this to this path, and you know when I started nutrition uh, not that long ago, but it was all about health outcomes, right? What's the, the healthiest thing? And now health outcomes need to include sustainability in the environment. Right. Uh, th these are huge issues. You know the biggest questions on the planet right now how to deal with this so yeah um plant sources can be considered you know optimal ways of doing this in some contexts so so one thing that i think the omega industry has in common we all share a similar at the sort of pinnacle of our hierarchy if you like is that we recognize that human human intake of omega-3s is, is, is significantly below where it needs to be and part of that is, is because of the offset between elevated levels of omega-6 because of commoditized agricultural crops such as soy and corn, et cetera. So, so we share a similar overriding drive to create awareness for omega-3s and, and boost intake. Um, but when we get down to the sources, as you say, that's where a little bit more controversy comes in about whether it's plant-based or marine-based. Um, whether it's sustainable or whether it has a finite supply to it. One, one question that many of our audience and, and customers have is, so I hear all this and I, I, can't, I can't dedicate enough time and energy to become an expert in the whole area of lipid metabolism, but I am looking for an alternative because of either sustainability or taste preferences or uh, lifestyle where I can incorporate uh, more omega-3s into my diet, such as salad dressings and beverages and that sort of thing. The, the question that we hear very frequently is, can I confidently and safely dial down my marine oil intake and up-dial, upscale, up-regulate my plant-based omega intake and still meet my daily sort of quotient of omegas? What, what would your answer to that section of the population be? So... You know, I, as a nutritionist and not a dietitian, as a researcher, I get to answer these questions in a more complicated fashion. Maybe. I actually think people can do it, but you need to be careful. There's a, there's a few things out there that we, we need to be careful with. One are these omega-6s that have been dialed up. They've been dialed up, you know, so high historically, we've never been at these levels. So that, 
leads some of my colleagues to say, well, the omega-6s are so high and they compete for this synthesis and, and they maybe, you know, they challenge the synthesis such that we should just forget about this and go with the, the fish oil products. It's an argument to be made. But I think if you, you know, there's at least two approaches I'm interested, dial back the omega-6s, then, you know, you've got, you've got a path forward. The other thing, and part of the reason we're excited to work with you guys and your products is that the, the competition is, starts at what I can call the first step, this ALA to LA kind of battle for an enzyme called the Delta-6. The SDA is exciting, an exciting tool here because it gets to skip that fight. It's, it's the next step in the pathway, a little closer. Uh, so I, you know, I think we need to do more research, but I'm very excited about that as an opportunity to, you know, the reality of the food supply is so backwards in some places that people don't even know they're consuming these omega-6s. And it's going to be hard for them to, to dial it back down and, and decrease their intake. So maybe we can not worry about that as much and get around that step. Yeah, it's a, it's a fascinating point. I'm, I'm very much a visual learner and a visual thinker. And when I try to uh, sort of visualize that metabolic pathway that you mentioned, uh, I've always seen in my mind, it's like a turnstile at a rugby game. I'm a, I don't understand football and soccer, but rugby I do. <laughs> and it's, you imagine sort of like the, the All Blacks in New Zealand playing England uh, at a rugby game. And the, uh, the teams are, or the supporting teams are 20 to one. There's 20 English people for every New Zealand guy there. And they can't get through that. They all have to go through the same turnstile. And that's like omega-3 and omega-6 going through that single metabolic pathway. And guess what? If you don't increase the number on one side of the turnstile, you're not going to increase the number of supporters in the stands on the other one. And you kind of, you've set this rate limiting step. And I think if we can, you know, it's like increasing the number of all black fans there, increasing the number of omega threes, we would have a more even transition through that turnstile and then metabolize to longer chain fatty acids. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I know nothing about rugby either. We should have had a hockey conversation, <laughs> but, but, you know, in your analogy, what we're, we're hoping is to, you know, maybe not even have to worry about going through the same gate, maybe make a special door Skip. where you just get to jump over the gate or, you know, sneak in the back kind of thing. And that's, that's exactly where I was going with that. So our, our HeFlow has this wonderful ability because of its steridonic acid content to sort of bypass that turnstile. So you kind of don't have to show your ticket or get your barcode stamp. You can get, you know, you get in for free and it's actually evening the game. It's evening the balance of the, uh, the other side of the turnstile. Yeah, and, and without, you know, lowering the omega-6 contents, or in this case, the, the, uh, the opposing team's fans, right? Right. And, I, and I'll, I'm, I'll apologize that I've just taken a very high-level science subject and brought it down <laughs> to the lowest common denominator. So, that's so. all right. That's all right. <laughs> um, so, so, Richard, the research that you've done and, and uh, the, the partnership you've had with our business has been phenomenal yes you've helped guide our thinking around omega-3 nutrition you've helped guide our thinking around um the, the importance of the type of omega where it comes from and also the sustainability are there any sort of closing comments that you would have for our audience based on your research around ahi flower and sort of looking into the future a crystal ball as to what this might mean three or five years from now for the consumer yeah, so, you know, I always like to put out a, a couple caveats first. Um, the, the research we're doing is not in the context of things like neurodevelopment. I think, 
you know, preformed sources of DHA are important for the developing brain and these things. But what we're talking about is adults who have to make, you know, food choices. And I, I'm, I'm really excited about this. Obviously, we need to do a bit more research and push some of these things forward. But the, the young nutritional scientist today and the consumer, you know, um, has real questions about, you know, the, the origins of the food, the safety of the food, the ethical, uh, the way it's collected and, and the environment. The environment is, is uh, now a part of the nutritional sciences. So uh, we're excited to, to be able to take a, another tool um, and to be able to push that forward to test the hypotheses anyways, that, that yes, plant sources can be converted enough uh, to supply the adult human brain. And in this context of omega-6s, you know, maybe we can skip that step and get around that and we'll push that forward. And then I'll say, you know, one other important thing is genetics. And, you know, some people seem to be really good at this conversion at that same spot. Um, that kind of delta six kind of turnstile thing that gets stuck. Some people seem to be a little better at it. And conversely, some people seem to be a little worse at it. So maybe, you know, a product like iFlower can, can get around the, the genetics or the security guard, if I can go to an analogy, to, to help us push forward. And, and this could, you know, this has potentially really big implications um, as, as uh, vegetarian and vegan diets are really popular. I don't think they're a fad. I don't. I don't think this is gonna, you know, like the cabbage soup diet disappear in in kind of 10, 20 years. I think this is a real big movement, and they're interested in nutrition, ethics, and the environment. So, uh, giving these people uh, more options uh, in the food supply, I think, is a is a fantastic idea and a very important route forward. Yeah. No, that's that, that's a great closing note. Thank you. It, it absolutely is. They say ultimately. I think we're all looking at this through a similar lens, which is in improving our dietary fat intake for better health outcomes, better health and wellness and longevity. So um, Richard, it's always a pleasure to, to speak with you. Thank you for sharing your thoughts and your most recent research. And I hope the rest of the summer continues to go well. Thank you. We're, you know, we're pushing this forward and hopefully we'll have some more updates for everybody soon. Okay, thank you.